everybody. Good evening. Nice to see so many friendly, familiar faces. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Josh Busby. I'm Ken Shadlin, Department of International Development. Josh is a sociologist at the University of Texas. He is an associate professor of public affairs. Josh is one of our leading scholars on sort of more generally, at the most general levels, social movements and global economic governance. This is something he's written about in all sorts of different domains, climate change, um, debt relief. Those of you who've taken my course know from the reading list an article that he published about seven years ago called Bono Made Jesse Helms Cry, which is good not just because of the title, but it's also quite a good article. Um, so the book that he's going to be talking about today, which is he co-authored with his colleague Ethan Capstein, there it is, AIDS Drugs for All, uh, takes up these themes. It's an excellent book. Um, you can buy a copy of it out in the hallway when we're done, as a matter of fact. Obviously, the, the, you know, the, the proper names are differently here, different social movements, different forms of global economic governance, different challenges, different strategies. But again, dealing with this question, particularly the question about sort of in the subtitle of the book about how sort of non-state actors can come together and affect the way markets are created and the way markets function. Um, it's an excellent book that has all sorts of new insights on a topic that, frankly, is a, a pretty well-studied topic. Um, and so you might even be surprised that a book could come out now and say something new about this, but they clearly do in a great way. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Josh. Welcome to LSE. And um, I'm going to sit in the crowd so I can see your slides, so, but don't feel abandoned, all right? And then when we're done, uh, we'll sit down and you can take questions and answers. And show is, the floor is yours. Thanks. Oh, but yeah, we just have to welcome Josh. Thanks so much for the introduction. Uh, I'd like to thank Ken for uh, having me. Uh, I uh, did a second uh, bachelor's at UEA in the mid-1990s uh, in development studies, so uh, I have a, a great fondness for this part of the world. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is, this, is the new book, Aid Structs for All Social Movements and Market Transformations. And what I'd like to do in my maybe 40 minutes or so is give you a little background on the project itself, uh, talk about the, uh, the context uh, uh, for those of you who may be less familiar, uh, talk about the research question, uh, introduce the argument, and uh, discuss some of the applications to other issues, uh, how the argument might travel to other domains, and then uh, talk about the, the future, both the, for this issue area and research in this space. Uh, by way of uh, introduction, uh, this is uh, obviously a collaborative work with my uh, colleague uh, Ethan Kapstein. It uh, builds on uh, a series of articles that we did before, one in Global Policy that came out in 2010, and there's a related working paper that we did for the Center for Global Development. There's a sort of short version of it in the Rutledge Handbook of Global uh, Public Health. Uh, but it also um, builds on my previous book, uh, Moral Movements in Foreign Policy. And so the, the work on debt relief, uh, there's a chapter in that on uh, the Jubilee 2000 campaign. There's also a cha uh, chapter on climate change advocacy, as well as one on the International Criminal Court. And whereas that book asked the question of why do some movements succeed in some places and not others, really focusing on foreign policy and uh, the behavior of states and international organizations, this one takes a, a slightly different tack by looking at uh, international organization, the international market structures, uh, and, and so that's really the emphasis of, it, of this one. Um, so, in terms of the methodology, it's largely qualitative. Um, it's got kind of mixes of deductive theoretical insights as well as fieldwork and interviews. 
Uh, and there are also some survey experiments embedded in, I want to say, Chapter 3. Um, and I can talk more about them in the Q&A. Um, just uh, to put the issue into context, um, as you may know, there uh, are an estimated some uh, 35 million people living with HIV today. Um, uh, some 35 million people have already died of AIDS. Um, 80% of those are now concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa, and we can talk about why that is in the Q&A. Just to know that in the you know, 1980s and 1990s, um, when this problem uh, emerged, that there were uh, concentrations in advanced industrialized countries of populations affected by this, particularly in the gay community, also hemophiliacs and others. But by the mid-1990s, when highly active antiretroviral therapy, the combination of drugs, that uh, proved effective in uh, turning a disease that was once fatal into a chronic condition that people could survive uh, uh, indefinitely uh, by taking these drugs for the remainder of their lives. And yet those uh, drugs proved to be uh, uh, effective in advanced industrialized countries but were largely uh, unavailable to people in the developing world because they were too expensive. Um, and, and so, you know, we're in a, a different moment now because... Uh, in the 2000s, the resources that were made available to address this problem increased dramatically. Uh, so from the you know, less than a, a, a billion dollars, uh, there a light on this? There is a light. Uh, less than a, uh, a billion dollars uh, per year in the late 1990s and 2000s to an excess of uh, $13 billion by 2008. And that's in combining both international donor assistance as well as country-owned mobilization of finances. And this is just for low- and middle-income countries. This doesn't include the resources that are directed uh, for dealing with uh, the disease in uh, advanced industrialized countries. And that, uh, this has been updated a little bit. Uh, I like the other graph better because it has key milestones on it. But if you look at where we are now in 2012, we're closer towards uh, $20 billion being mobilized on an annual basis for low- and middle-income countries with targets uh, increasing towards 2015 of it, uh, around uh, $24 billion uh, if, it, if we get there. Um, and what is that uh, incredible mobilization of resources bought? Well, in part, it's bought uh, uh, resources for treatment, for expanding the number of people uh, who have access to antiretroviral therapy in uh, poor and middle-income countries from you know, less than uh, 400,000 in, in around two, the early 2000s to excess of 9.7 uh, million uh, by the end of 2012. And they continually, uh, steadily increase. You know, uh, 1.6 million were added in 2011. Now there's some issues about how these numbers are arrived at and counted and does it actually uh, fully encompass the people who are, who've does it just encompass the people who've ever taken these drugs in the first place, or is it actually the number of people who are on this on a daily basis? We can talk more about that on, in the Q&A. But the upshot is that of the 15 million people who are under old WHO treatment guidelines, who uh, the World Health Organization guidelines, who are thought sick enough to need treatment, now 64%, 9.7 million, have access to treatment. Now, there are new treatment guidelines that suggest that perhaps uh, people uh, should be brought on these drugs sooner and that really 25 million people uh, need access to the drugs. But nonetheless, we, we can say that this is a partial success, uh, that the, the extension of, uh, of treatment to uh, nearly 65% of the, those who need it is an incredible transformation that had occurred in, in just uh, a little bit more than a decade. And so um, 
One of the reasons for this is the uh, transformation in drug prices for antiretroviral therapy that in the uh, early 2000s cost $10,000 per person per year, which was beyond the means of anyone in the developing world, really, except for a handful of elites, to be able to afford. And now we're less than $100 per year for the, for, per patient. Um, and as these prices fell, and we can talk about why they fell, it increases scope and ambition by, uh, uh, by donors and countries and individuals to maybe be able to afford these. Now, um, you can see the combination of drug prices, the generic price uh, set against uh, rising numbers of people on treatment. Uh, and so that naturally sets up the question that animates uh, this project is why did this incredible transformation in AIDS treatment occur? Um, and why did the movement for AIDS treatment succeed at least partially to the extent that we think this is a process that was driven by social movement activity? And the, more broadly, you know, people, have, as Ken suggested, have written about this topic before, but what we wanted to do is say, why do some movements succeed in changing markets while, other fail, while others fail? Uh, to really get at the more generalizable question to see if we could develop from this case an argument that might travel to other domains by which you can assess uh, whether or not other campaigns on climate change, on malaria, on uh, universal access to education or clean water, what are the prospects for them emulating the success of the AIDS case? What was it about the AIDS case uh, that we can uh, understand and perhaps uh, think about the implications for other cases? And that's really what we tried to do in this book. Um, now, the, the economist's explanation for what happened here is a simple one, which is spontaneous market entry by generics drove down prices and extended access. So, you know, uh, the company that first offered uh, lower prices for these drugs, uh, CIPLA, under the leadership of Yusuf Hamid, uh, is one, but uh, there are a whole host of other generic firms that are active in this space. Most of them uh, are in India, although Aspen is in South Africa. Now, um, we have a, uh, an answer to this uh, question, which is this uh, market transformation wouldn't have happened without politics. Uh, the market was politically constructed, and access would have been limited without political intervention. The uh, companies like CIPLA didn't enter the market um, spontaneously. They were asked and, and treated and uh, begged by campaigners like uh, Jamie Love at CP Tech and uh, folks from Doctors Without Borders. They asked them to enter the market. And then once they entered the market, uh, they, lower, they all made an offer to lower their prices, but there weren't people banging down doors to buy their drugs, even at 300 or, um, come back for a second, even at uh, 295 or 280, the, the, not very many people in poor countries could afford the drugs, and even at those relatively low prices. And so um, what you needed were a set of other actions uh, beyond, uh, beyond just lowering the prices, you needed procurement strategies to buy the drugs, you needed regulatory structures to ensure that the drugs that were bought um, uh, did the things that they were intended to do, uh, and, and more. And all of this required uh, the intervention uh, politically, but also the social movement to buttress and support and encourage these actions to take place. So um, Admiral Mahler has made this argument uh, succinctly in other places. The emergence of a market for generic ARVs was shaped by public policies, notably the provision of donor funding for treatment and the creation of an international regulatory structure for drug quality approval. And so she made this argument in 2010, and what we sought to do is build upon it by thinking about 
how to situate the AIDS case in a wider theoretical context, and then, as I suggested earlier, think about how uh, this insight might travel to other domains. And so uh, the uh, initial motivation is, is, is uh, governed by this insight, which you don't have to be a Marxist to know that markets produce durable outcomes that disproportionately reward politically and economically powerful actors. You could be a Marxist, and, uh, but you don't have to be a Marxist to believe this, right? Um, and that these perceptions of injustice and unfairness may inspire market contestation. They may inspire uh, social movements to say, now hang on a minute, uh, this doesn't have to be uh, the kind of, uh, fate of nature, this doesn't have to be here forevermore, we can change things. And so who are the universe of advocates in this space? Uh, who are the advocates? And one of the things that we want to draw attention to is that the advocates weren't merely NGOs and activist outsiders. There were insiders in there as well. Now, there certainly were uh, activists, radical Western activists included, those uh, who were members of ACT UP and the successor uh, group, Health Gap, who'd been active in trying to... Uh, uh, address HIV-AIDS in advanced industrialized countries. Uh, they were there. They were uh, act really active in this space. Um, but also uh, uh, affected populations, the Treatment Action Campaign and others in South Africa and other countries that were, were affected by this problem were very active in this space. But you also had medical professionals like Paul Farmer and others uh, who uh, uh, drew on the, both their moral authority and expertise to draw attention to this issue. Um, then there are the moderate sort of advocacy service organizations like Oxfam and Data, both um, uh, Data and the One Campaign, both uh, 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 creations of Bono, and then the Clinton Foundation and the uh, Clinton HIV, HIV AIDS Access Initiative is a, a really important part of the story that I'll come back to. Then, of course, as, as I want to mention, that there were insiders. The, uh, Peter Piat, who was head of UNAIDS, and Kofi Annan at the, uh, at the United Nations, as well as Mark Dybul, who is currently the head of the Global Fund and uh, ran the U.S. bilateral program, PEPFAR. Um, and then just to, to complete the universe of actors in this space, one of the interesting facets of this particular campaign is that there were, uh, uh, particularly in the United States, right-wing actors uh, uh, motivated uh, uh, by religious concerns, the evangelical community, uh, groups like Samaritan's Purse, uh, 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 and, and others were especially active in this space. The son of Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, runs Samaritan's Purse. And while they didn't see eye to eye on all aspects of the HIV AIDS issue, uh, motivated in part by their own um, uh, evangelism and outreach in the developing world, they saw that many of the, uh, the faith groups that they worked with had uh, uh, people who are suffering from this problem in there, uh, they made a concerted effort to want to do something about it. Um, and then finally, you know, while they had mixed motives, uh, people like Yusuf Hamid of Siplo were also advocates for extended access in this space, and people like him didn't necessarily have to, uh, uh, it wasn't purely a profit motive, I think, uh, particularly for him in, in getting involved in this space. Now this just is, is still uh, more by way of scene setting. Um, what we really want to describe is what happened in this, in this particular case and to think more broadly. What we see here is a market transformation. Uh, you have a change in the principle of market access. Prior to uh, the emergence of the movement and the decline in prices that occurred thereafter, you had this market basically being one of private goods that people had access to based on their ability to pay. And what happened as a consequence of the mobilization in this space is that 
uh, it was transformed um, both intellectually and in practice into a merit good that uh, should be supplied to everyone on the basis of need. Now we know that that hasn't fully been met, but the idea of how this good, these antiretroviral drugs should be treated has largely changed both in people's minds and in, 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 in how they're sold, that uh, there's a sense that I, you know, people ought to have this no matter what their ability to pay. And so uh, at the outset, um, this, this is a drug that are set, sets of drugs that were high margin and low volume. Uh, you know, there, there, wasn't, there weren't a large quantity of drugs sold, but they were sold at very high prices. And now they're sold, uh, by and large, particularly in developing countries, uh, for low margins but higher volumes. So that's the story of market transformation. Now, we need a, a theory to understand how you get that transformation. And in our book, we develop a theory of strategic moral action. And the insight here is that advocates animated by moral ideas have scope for constrained agency, uh, that they are constrained by some of the larger structural forces out there, both in industry and in public opinion, uh, and the nature of the issues that they care about. And so to succeed, they have to have a self-conscious assessment of those limits and then be very uh, careful and pragmatic about how to deal with those. Uh, challenges that they face. So success requires self-conscious assessment of the market structure. So each of these five factors that I'm going to talk about has a dedicated chapter to it. And so what I'm going to do here is walk you through uh, each of those chapters and sort of sets of hypotheses, how we defend them um, and support them in the book, and then how we think they travel to other domains. So the first is that they have to have a self-conscious assessment of the market structure. Some markets may be more favorable to market transformation than others. Second, they have to have a careful understanding of the nature of the problem. Some things that they're advocating for may resonate more broadly than others as, uh, as appealing items for transnational advocacy than others. The third is that um, um, it, it is related to the, the values of the target audiences. Um, I, I'm actually missing one here that I realize is uh, the degree of their own internal coherence on what they want to do. Um, is the, actually the third one. Um, and the fourth one is the feasibility of the solution. Some solution sets may ultimately be uh, beyond what target actors feel capable of delivering, and I'll talk more about that. And the last is the long-run durability. Let's say you've, you've changed the market to favor uh, something that you care about. Well, that may be ephemeral unless you do some other things to ensure that the, uh, that outcome uh, is supported and sustained over the long run. So let, let me unpack each of these five dimensions. The, so the, we ask this broader question, under what conditions can market transformation occur? And the first is, is the market contestable? This gets at this, this question of, of, of industry structure. And so um, I'll come back and unpack that in a second. The second is, advocate, have advocates framed the issue in a compelling way? And I'll unpack that one as well. Third is this, have the advocates identified a coherent ask? Are they all united around a common ask. And that, you know, have they asked for something, um, for something uh, coherent? And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll flesh that out in a second. Is what they're asking for costly, this fourth factor, um, or can they change the cost-benefit calculus of target actors? And I'll uh, reveal uh, one layer of that on onion in a second. I'm mixing lots of metaphors here. Uh, in any case. Um, and then finally, have institutions been established to stabilize the new market outcome? And so for each of these, let me walk you through the intuitions behind them. So what do we mean by contestable market? Well, uh, you know, is the market potentially uh, susceptible to change? 
how, how would you know if a market is susceptible to change? And what we thought about after lots of discussions, a lot of work in this space focuses on firm levels. You know, is a firm potentially susceptible to demands by advocates? Um, you know, in, in a lot of the, uh, you know, the literature and a lot of the campaigns focus on, well, the kinds of um, factors that make individual firms susceptible to social movement influence has to do with, do they have an international brand that might be affected by transnational advocacy? You know, if you're Home Depot or you're um, you know, Nike, you have a brand that's worth something that if it gets tarnished, then you may fear that you're going to lose some uh, future value, and so you might be uh, more amenable uh, to uh, uh, social movement influence. Well, that, that tells you something about the individual firm, but doesn't tell you about whether the market for you know, shoes or pharmaceuticals in its broad contours can be changed. And so what we try to do here is think about, okay, how, how one might understand whether or not the, this sort of sector of the market might be changed. And so we asked ourselves, okay, well, let's say there are a whole bunch of producers. How easy is it to kind of change the behavior? Think about collective action dilemma of, of changing the behavior of lots of people. Imagine there are 10 of you uh, and you're all deciding on where to go to dinner. That is a real challenge sometimes if you all have heterogeneous um, kind of interests and in, you know, some of you are vegetarian, you get a, a handful of vegans and then some people are dedicated meat eaters. Now, uh, imagine a situation in which there are just two of you, right? You know, that's a little bit easier for you to, to uh, think about and resolve. Well, translate that into market sector in which you, if you have thousands and millions of producers who are responsible for production in this space, trying to cajole and corral all of them can be problematic. But if there are a handful of them, uh, the market structure can change rather quickly if they decide or if there's a market entry of a, of a new player that's able to provide uh, the, the product at, uh, with reasonably high volumes. And so um, the, the key aspect of this is how concentrated is the market. A more concentrated market, we think, is more susceptible to change. And if the market outcomes are highly uh, skewed in a way that um, you know, uh, means that uh, there are a large number of people who don't have access to a particular good in question, then that uh, makes it uh, uh, more likely to be targeted at the same time. So if you have concentrated production and this uh, injustice of delivery, um, then we think that this is a market that is both uh, ripe for change and also likely to be targeted. The second is the dimension of a contestable market is how durable are the rules that favor incumbents? Now, one way to think about this is in terms of something that's less relevant in the market space, but think about sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty. This is kind of an embedded notion that we almost take for granted in the international system. Now, it is on some level with the rise of ideas like the responsibility to protect, that basic notions of state sovereignty, of having the ability to control what happens with inside their own borders, is subject to change and revision, but we almost, it has a sort of taken for granted quality because it's been with us for like 500 years. Well, in the domain of pharmaceuticals, the intellectual property rights rules that emerged are a relatively recent creation. They, they come into being in the mid-1990s with the creation of the World Trade Organization. They have a phased-in quality for developing countries. But because they're so new, they're subject to contestation. So both the fact that you had a handful of... There are only a few companies that really make the drugs um, for antiretroviral therapy. And the rules are relatively new. And so 
This was a space in the aid space that was ripe for contestation. Uh, the market could change uh, if the behavior of those firms changed or if new entrants like generic companies entered the market at scale. And then the rules were contestable because they were relatively new. Uh, they didn't have this take-it-for-granted embedded quality. So that's our first hypothesis, that um, you know, a contestable market uh, uh, is a more favorable to uh, potential market transformation. And this is a, almost like a sequential argument. If the nature of your problem is such that you don't even have a contested market, then advocates may never get off the ground. They might try, but it could be pretty fruitless. They may not get very far beyond that. And some of the issues, um, like climate change, may have languished in part because, and I'll talk about this more in a little bit, because uh, advocates haven't done this uh, pragmatic assessment of the likelihood of success and maybe haven't realized some of the insights that um, we modestly put forward here. So, um, or not so modestly. In any case, uh, let me talk about the second dimension, about uh, compelling frame. Um, again, the injustice potential I referenced earlier, that that may animate... Uh, uh, wide-scale uh, support for challenging that injustice. But that may, the, the degree to which there is the sense of injustice and outrage universally to the extent that, or broadly in multiple countries, may depend on the nature of what they're asking for, the nature of the good. Is that good necessary for survival, right? Um, so here we're building on some of the insights that uh, uh, Margaret Keck and Catherine Sicking developed in their book on Activists Beyond Borders, which many of you may have read at some stage, which talks about uh, campaigns tend to be more successful if they frame their efforts as uh, uh, about bodily harm. That's one piece of their argument, that, um, that this is sort of their empirical regularity that they found, particularly in the human rights arena, that you know if the human rights advocates were able to tap into something that was perceived as uh, threatening bodily harm, and they tended to do better, right? And so um, the intuition here, theoretically, for us is that in the market arena, uh, the extent to which the good is necessary for survival uh, may uh, be central to whether or not um, there's white support for it around the world of providing universal access for it. And uh, so we tried to get at that by a series of survey experiments, which I can talk more about in the Q&A, that test and I'll, I'll, show, I'll show the slide in a second. But the, 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 uh, the, the idea here is that um, some, of the dr drug, uh, some of the goods in question might be more central to survival, and therefore there's almost um, uh, a, a human reaction to the lack of uh, provision of these goods when some people have access to them and other people don't. Um, and so... You know, some of the things that are necessary for survival are food, water, some of the drugs that we talk about, like antiretrovirals. There may be other drugs. There may be other things like maternal mortality services. Um, some things may be seen as so central to survival that uh, when there's this strong injustice potential of some people having them and other people not, then that may command more uh, universal support than other things. Uh, so at the bottom, you can't see the last one, but the last one is impotence drugs, right? Like, this is a luxury good that if you ran an, a, a universal campaign for access to Viagra, what are the chances that this would, and this is sort of, this is on the extreme, right? But the chances that this would resonate broadly seem kind of ludicrous. But this is a spectrum. In, in the middle are things that may not be seen as quite as central to survival, that may have difficulty generating the same kind of support 
um, like education, to the extent that this is broadly seen as essential for survival, uh, then you, you may uh, be able to uh, generate transnational interest in, uh, in a campaign for universal access to education. But I think it's, a, it's an open question about whether or not education is seen uh, as central to survival. You can test that. Um, so we test this, uh, some of these insights uh, through survey experiments that we did in India and the United States where we uh, had uh, a series of experiments, one that had the impotence drugs, one that had uh, cancer drugs, and others that were uh, uh, hypertension drugs. And uh, we tried to test that both in the U.S. and India. And broadly, it's true that uh, drugs that uh, were for survival, like uh, cancer, uh, uh, campaigns based on that, universal access to those drugs were much more successful than the Viagra one. But interestingly, there was less of a distinction between cancer drugs and hypertension drugs. And that raises some interesting questions about other, um, other campaigns. But not to dwell on this issue so much, I think that the upshot of, of this is that there are lots of issues that have uh, potential for successful framing uh, based on this quality of being essential for survival, there, you know, food, water, and others. And, um, and so the, many groups may be able to draw on that. Other groups may realize, well, there are issues until they're understood as questions about relating to survival, like climate change, that problem isn't quite seen, despite the vulnerability of low island countries, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, isn't quite seen in the same light as yet. Uh, and so that may be something that is amenable to action of reframing it as central as survival. Um, but that, that, that itself, you know, even if you have a contestable market, even if you're able to tie something as, as key to survival, doesn't mean that your campaign will succeed. Um, so, um, well, I'll leave this aside. I think there's some path dependency why AIDS was, there was mobilization around AIDS that, that, that grew out of the Jubilee 2000 campaign, but they could have directed their energies to any one of these other issues that were seen as core to survival. They perhaps happened upon a, a good one in that the market uh, was contestable and there were other favorable aspects that made it likely a case for success. But there are other campaigns that could have been done that just weren't. Um, so the third piece is this, this issue of movement coherence. And we basically ask, have the advocates reached consensus on an ask? And here, you know, thinking about the ask is they're, ta they're target asker actors and they're saying, we want X and we want you to do X. And so here, the, 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 the campaigners and the advocates in this space basically said, we want you to lower the prices so more people can access uh, and have access to treatment. Um, we can see what happens when you have division. And here the prevention agenda is interesting. Uh, because divided movements dissipate their influence through infighting. Uh, and so the AIDS prevention agenda was horribly divided. You had the folks on the religious right who were basically saying abstinence is the only way to deal with new infections. And you had folks on the left saying, no, 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 you have to promote condoms. Right? Uh, condoms is the only way, because people are not, not going to abstain from sex. Neither of those were the right answer on prevention. You know, at the end of the day, behavior change is hard. Prevention is this really uh, difficult piece of this problem, and we'll come back to it. And, um, but uh, they were divided on this, but they were allied on the question of treatment. Treatment ultimately was something that both left and right, particularly in the US, but in other places, could rally around and say, yes, I support treatment. Um, and, and so um, t 
to the extent that movements are united on an ask, they're more likely to be politically successful. So uh, when they're divided, they may confuse targets. So here's a, uh, Mark Milano, when I talked to him, he said, if people are getting the same ask from everybody, they obviously have to take you seriously. If you have 10 groups asking for 10 different things, nothing happens. And I pressed him on why that was. And he, and he basically said, you know, like if, if one group's asking for, you know, 15 million by, on treatment by 2015, and another group's saying 10 million by 2012, he's like, well, who the hell do we listen to? Uh, we don't know who to listen to. Uh, and that's a problem. We had divided movements. And I can talk about uh, in the climate case, why the divided movement is having less success these days. Okay, so the fourth dimension is about uh, a favorable cost-benefit uh, aspect. And, and to a certain extent, this becomes um, simplified to talk about, have the movement, has the movement asked for something that's costly? You know, when it's really costly, and it's affecting, say, uh, both costly for governments and most cost costly for private sector actors that are their targets, then they're less likely to succeed unless they can change the cost-benefit calculus of their target actors. Um, so, but there's another dimension of costs that w that's related to a wider issue of feasibility. And this is what the advocates had to deal with at the outset. There was the sense by people like Andronatius, who's head of USAID at the time, that it was just too hard to be able to deliver these drugs in resource-poor settings. And he's basically saying, look, you know, these people can't tell time, they're not going to stay on the drugs, so they're not going to know what time of day, they don't use watches, so this isn't going to work. So aside from the piece about the drug prices falling, which we talked about earlier, which made it seen as something that was more plausible, when it's $10,000 per patient per year, the ability to scale up and provide you know, millions of people with access to these drugs was just seen as impossible. Those drug prices fall, but there's still this sense of it's just going to be too costly, too difficult to be able to extend these drugs into resource-poor settings. So you had to have, uh, beyond this, this dealing with the issue of the, what, what's the sticker price of actually providing these drugs at scale, a sense that this could be done. So you had a series of pilot projects by MSF, by um, uh, also Paul Farmer in Haiti. There were some others that were supported by industry that all showed you could, you could do this. People would stay on the drugs and they, they'd take them faithfully, you know, and, and it seemed like you could do this. At the same time, you had to deal with the fears of what would be the ultimate cost for industry, um, both for branded firms and for generic firms. And now the branded firms, their calculus was more changed by the threat of unfavorable public opinion. You know, there was a lawsuit in, in the late 90s that the... Um, Branded firms filed against Nelson Mandela for South Africa's attempts to, uh, you know, uh, allow for generic imports. When they sued Mandela, that didn't go over so well, right? Um, and so they took a real beating on that in terms of public opinion. And so they're, uh, they're caught, and that was driven in part by mobilization by the Treatment Action uh, Campaign and others uh, internationally to support them. And so that, that was one of the reasons that changed their cost calculus, that maybe it's less costly for us to deal with this uh, by trying to lower our prices and support wider access than it is uh, uh, to kind of uh, 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 continue to uh, have international opprobrium heaped on us and potentially uh, have governments challenge our core business model by renegotiating this intellectual property rights regime that we fought so hard to defend. Generic firms had a different sense of cost. They thought, we're going to expand our factories in this space, we're going to make some offers for uh, price reductions, and then nobody's going to buy them. How do you allay our fears about that? And that really requires the next piece, which is 
institutions and support to buy the drugs. Um, and uh, you need finance and procurement uh, to buy the drugs and also to organize uh, the market initially. And so here, the Clinton Health Access, or now, now it's called Health Access Initiative. At the time, it's called the HIV AIDS Access Initiative. You had, uh, even before the Global Fund and PEPFAR, PEPFAR being the bilateral program in the U.S. and the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria, they became the main anchors that bought uh, and, and continue to buy HIV AIDS medicines. But even as they were getting sort of started, you had the CHI, the Clinton Initiative, come through and negotiate price reductions with the Indian uh, generic companies and Aspen uh, in South Africa and said, look, we have gone and we've organized the market. We've got promises that of demand in uh, a handful of countries in Africa, some in the Caribbean and elsewhere, of this volume. Will you, if, the, if we deliver this volume, will you lower your prices? And we've also got the Danes and other Nordic countries that are prepared to pay for it. So the money's there, right? The demand is there. Will you lower your prices? And we'll work with you to figure out how to reduce your prices with your supply chain. And the people that I talked to in the uh, Indian generics firm industry there said, we didn't know if this was going to work, but we said, you know, it was President Clinton, right? And you know, his people be behind it. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll go for it. And it, you know, it didn't all work out, but enough of it worked out in, in the early 2002-2003 period that this gave the Indian generic firms uh, uh, the confidence to go beyond their toe in the water of announcing you know, price reductions. There was actually demand there. And then the Global Fund and, um, and PEPFAR came in earnest and started demanding and buying these drugs at larger and larger quantities. And you know, part of this had to happen because there was flexibility over intellectual property rights. So there were some agreements uh, that were reached in the WTO, which gave developing countries more flexibility to use uh, sort of uh, uh, trips-related, uh, trade-related, uh, uh, just intellectual property rights flexibilities. I'm going to try and unpack that too much. I'll run out of time, so I want to get to the end. But um, the other two pieces of this institutional story, because what what the idea here is that. None of these outcomes to lower the prices that to begin to scale up demand would have any staying power if there weren't the institutions of support to finance and buy these drugs on a continuous basis and ensure that uh, they met certain quality criteria. That um, without this institutional support for all of these activities, you know, the, the changes in the offers for lower prices could go away and then we'd be back to uh, the, the old regime. And so this, this set of procurement uh, commitments and other rules uh, ensured that the new market outcome had some staying power and continues to have staying power. So the third piece of this is treatment guidelines. You know, the World Health Organization weighs in and says, okay, based on the latest science, we think these are the best drugs that doctors should provide. And, and then people buy on the basis of that. Not always, but they follow them pretty closely. They look at the set of what's recommended, and they go, okay, these are the ones that we should buy. Um, but then you have to go through a further step and have certain certification standards. Because if these are going to be bought by generic producers that are sort of copying the branded drugs, how do you know if they work? You know, the, the branded companies are always talking about, oh, they're counterfeit, they're fake, they don't, you know, people are selling these knockoff ones of inferior quality. And so the WHO has this pre-certification process that they're not a regulatory body, but they do some investigative work to uh, uh, ensure that the uh, drugs from generic companies meet a certain standard. 
and then they you know, list them on their pre-approval list, and then donors buy on the basis of that. The US, which is one of the largest procurers of drugs, initially didn't have that at all, uh, and they weren't going to trust the WHO process, so they set up their own fast-track process with the US FDA. Initially, PEPFAR wasn't buying hardly any generics. Now they buy almost exclusively generics. And so these are the rules that buttress the ability of uh, the new market actors, uh, uh, primarily Indian generics, to be able to uh, sell their drugs and have them ensure that they're of sufficient quality and that the volume of resources flows to uh, ensure that treatment is provided on a, on a continuous basis. Okay, so that's the aid story. Um, you had these five factors that were favorable and supportive of, uh, of uh, market transformation. Can this success be replicated? So in our chapter seven of the book, we, uh, we look at uh, a whole host of other campaigns in the health space and beyond to try to assess whether or not other campaigns uh, for access um, or for market transformation could succeed. So we code, uh, and we can talk about this in the Q&A, malaria is a likely case. Uh, maternal mortality is mixed. Some factors are favorable, some factors are unfavorable. Water and diarrheal disease is somewhat unlikely. Non-communicable diseases like cancer, again, mixed. Uh, and we can talk about that. Education, unlikely to mixed. Climate, unlikely, and I'm going to spend a little time on, on, on saying why that is. Uh, wildlife trade, mixed. Um, uh, sex trafficking, mixed. The modern uh, sex trafficking, uh, modern slave trade is mixed. And then we also went in back and, and, and coded the historic slave trade, which was a success uh, of, of successful advocacy of the abolition movement. But it was a hard one. Our theory wouldn't have necessarily predicted it. It had really high costs, um, but the British government was willing to bear those. Um, and, and so that was a successful case. So why is the climate change case coded as an unlikely case? Well, if the AIDS case uh, by our coding is uh, almost a most favorable case, given all five of our factors, um, the climate change case is almost the least likely case. It's a really uh, hard case. Because you know, there's no single you know, uh, set of market actors that produce greenhouse gases. It comes from a variety of sources. It's not just from, you know, it's, yes, it's burning fossil fuels, but they're, you know, they're burned by industry. They're burned in transport. Uh, you also have uh, other climate forcers like hydrofluorocarbons. You have methane produced from a variety of uses. Um, you also have changes in land use, both in agriculture and forestry. There are lots of different contributors. Uh, and so it's really fragmented, the sort of industry structure in this space. So that's, that makes it hard in the outset. Then have they successfully rallied and identified a compelling frame? As I suggested earlier, uh, uh, climate change is not so centrally identified with survival, the problem itself. Now, in low-lying low island nations in the South Pacific, yes, it is. In maybe increasingly in sodden England, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not survival. If you're, maybe if you're in and around flooding zones, yes. Um, but until we have more sort of Hurricane Katrinas and Hurricane Sandys um, and, and the like, uh, we may not have the sense in some of the core countries that are being asked to change their behavior, uh, a feeling that's widespread that this is an existential concern, and that's a problem. The third is, you know, this movement is now divided. In, in the late 1990s, they were united. We, will, we want targets and timetables on binding emissions reductions. 
We want the Kyoto Protocol or something like it. We want treaties. They got it, but they didn't get the uh, core actors to uh, ratify uh, that treaty, like the United States. And, um, and then it sort of has fallen apart. The movement's become more diverse. And now there's a split between the sort of moderates who are like, we'll take any deal you can get. And then the climate justice types who are like, screw that. We would, we, they need to do more. The division among them means that they don't have much influence. And one of the reasons that this, the Kyoto Protocol didn't go anywhere is that you had highly, you know, high costs for both, you know, petrocarbon states. So the adjustment costs for states were potentially high, but also private actors. And so they asked for something that was really expensive. Uh, it's very difficult. We may think that 13 to 20 billion dollars for HIV AIDS is a lot of money, but in the scheme of things, in terms of the adjustment costs for climate change, which are uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in adjustment costs per year, orders of magnitude higher. Um, and there aren't stabilizing institutions, uh, as in the AIDS case, that are ensuring new market outcomes are rewarded. You have the emissions trading scheme, but you know, the people are familiar with it, uh, the European emissions trading scheme, the, you know, the permit prices are too low, there's been over excess of, of permits that were awarded. Other institutions like the Clean Development Mechanism are weak. They're not universally present, so the U.S., China, you know, don't have, uh, have rules that uh, penalize and, uh, carbon on a consistent basis. So there aren't institutions, and these institutions are new, right? Uh, in the same way that they are in, in, the, in the aid space, but they're, they're, they are, these are new rules in themselves subject to contestation. So our theory would you know, uh, predict failure in this space and it requires advocates to think anew about are there concentrated handholds that we can identify in the climate space that we might have more success if we focus on? Are there ways to tie this problem into uh, survival? Um, can we unite after being divided um, and cohere around a common ask? Um, uh, can we think about pieces of this like on uh, on HFCs or methane that are less of a heavy lift, that cost less, and, and in the short run, it may build confidence for us to, uh, to be able to deliver the more expensive things later on. And we, can we create more widespread institutions that consistently uh, reward actors in a new low-carbon economy uh, and, and get over uh, having weak and fragmented uh, partial coverage geographically? Okay. So that's the story of the climate case, and we you know, try to tell the story uh, in a whole bunch of other cases. And you, know, you might take issue with our, our arguments, applicability to those other cases, but we put our necks out there and said, here's our reading of the malaria case and others, uh, and we're, we're certainly open to conversation and criticism on that. Well, so where are we now with the AIDS case? Let's come back to that, and I'll close on this. Um, you know, the recession raised some serious concerns, the global recession raised some concerns that were, there would be diminishment in foreign assistance for HIV-AIDS. And you know, there was a slide earlier, the one where I showed the increase in resources that happened from that 13 billion to 20. It kind of flattened out a little bit after the financial crisis of 2008, but politicians didn't go wobbly. Um, uh, even you know, in places like the UK, where there have been you know uh, uh, dramatic transformations and cuts in some areas, not in this space. That this is a, and in the US too, uh, governments continue to hold the line and want to support uh, 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 more money and sustained spending on HIV/AIDS. But there's this 
question of there are two million new infections a year, that, uh, and so we're not going to we're we're not going to be able to deal with this problem unless we crack the back of prevention, unless we're able to come up with ways of dealing with the the fact that two million new people are becoming infected, and that means the cohort of people who are living with HIV and who have to take these drugs for the remainder of their lives will continue to grow and grow beyond that 35 million. Um, that's a problem. Um, and and what I can talk a little bit more in the Q&A about loss to follow-up. There are people who take the drugs and then we never know what happens with them. That number of 9.7 million, if we pick at it too much, it, it, there may be some problems there. Uh, there's some other things that we talk about in the book about procurement and competition, that the number of, of, of players and companies involved in this space may be really small and there may be problems. Uh, the margins are so low that some of the companies may be getting out of this space. And then the, the pharma companies themselves, the branded pharma companies, continue um, to want to, um, some have, are more amenable to action to extend access and others are uh, trying to claw back um, more defense of intellectual property rights, not just in the AIDS space, but also in non-communicable diseases like cancer and other uh, things like diabetes, because the growth margins uh, and areas for profit are really in middle-income countries. And AIDS has always been a sort of touchstone for if you, if you sort of give an inch on intellectual property rights on HIV AIDS, what does that mean for our growth sectors, for the core diseases that affect far more people? Um, and so that continues uh, to be a problematic area. Um, and uh, and so, um, so even though the institutions are in place to reward HIV AIDS, um, there's, you know, the drug resistance requires the development of new drugs, and, you know, the, the, they're, they're, this thing could unravel. It's not like it's sedimented in stone. It's still relatively new. Um, so in terms of future research on, on movements and markets, there, there's a lot more with data sets and assessment of the stability of institutions and more strategies of contention. But I, I've, I've gone three minutes over my allotted time of 45 minutes, so I want to stop there and open it up for questions. So thank you. Thanks very much, Josh. Um, you can come sit down. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's some microphones here, which we may or may not need because we're a fairly small place. We we'll probably use them anyway because you're going to try to record this, right? Yeah. So, um, so I'll all jump up at once. Well, I'm going to then, while you're all sort of you know thinking up all your great questions, I'm going to push you on a couple of things. All right. So. I really, I really genuinely love this book. Um, I've been working on this topic for a while, and when you work in the topic, you tend to get, as we say, sort of stuck in the weeds and being obsessed with the details. And I think you guys do a great job sort of linking really deep empirical research on sort of who was doing what, when, at what time, to big issues of theory. Um, and so I really congratulate on that. But I want to sort of push you on two things. And these are things that I know you have answers to because they're sort of in the book. And in a sense, what I'm asking you to do is essentially elaborate them more on your talk, in your talk. And the first is um, about what I think it's the third variable, about coherence. Mm -hmm. um, I've been following sort of the movement about IP and um, pharmaceuticals for quite some time. And you depict a version of coherence that isn't one that is necessarily recognizable to me. I mean, I think that you could sort of think about three different streams of thought. You have people who basically want to have lower price of antiretroviral drugs, mm -hmm. which is the way you depict it. Mm -hmm. 
They want these to become merit. They want to become merit goods. Mm-hmm. Anybody can get who needs it can get it. You have people who want basically to relax the IP rule, the patent rules on antiretroviral drugs. Mm-hmm. And so when a country negotiates a lower price with Merck or Abbott, mm-hmm. that's not good enough mm-hmm. because they let Merck or Abbott keep their mm-hmm. patent protection. Right. And what they should have done is basically override their patent. Right. And then you have another group who basically want to tumble the IP system, want to roll mm-hmm. back the TRIPS agreement, mm-hmm. and basically saying that, these, what, that basically these concessions about, that are sort of circumscribed to mm-hmm. AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, sort of infectious diseases, that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I see huge divisions in mm-hmm. these groups. And so I just wonder, like, I mean, you can call it coherent, and maybe what I'm doing is, notice, is like looking at small divisions in a, in a tiny, narrow mm-hmm. view of the world in which I live. But yeah. I'm just wondering why that's coherent rather than incoherent, that you have these three sort of conflicting groups. And then the other question I want to ask you, and then I'm going to be, I'll shut up for a while, is um, are AIDS drugs really merit goods, or are a very, very small category of AIDS drugs that work now, it won't work 10 years from now, mm-hmm. and there are even a small universe of the AIDS drugs that work now, merit goods. Right. Okay, those are both great questions. I think uh, in the book we do pick up on some of those dynamics about the divisions within the movement on the strategies for getting to lower prices. But at the end of the day, um, they were united in the demand for lower prices and that treatment was a high priority. And so that was the, um, that was the meta issue upon which they were... Uh, I've already drank it. Drank. I already drank and drank out of that one. So let me take. Let me take this one. Yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. It's empty though. Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll fill it up again in case you you need water. All right. Uh, I already drank out of that. Okay. Drink out of this one. Yeah. Drink out of that one. I drank out of this. Uh, this is like the scene all being recorded on the podcast. Yeah, you know? I know. This is going to be like that scene in uh, in the Princess Bride, and then he'll kill over and die in a second. Um, um, okay. Sorry. Um, so this issue about uh, relaxing IP rules and lower prices or tumbling the IP systems, I think you're absolutely right there. But the meta issue was they were all agreed that the prices had to come down. And there was some division over strategy. But early on, there was uh, people, it, and, and maybe this is a, a, is a too subjective reading of it, that um, you had folks like Jamie Love who were closer to the um, – Beyond the relaxed IP rules, they were on the tumble IP systems, and they were able to kind of make common cause with other people, like particularly TAC and the South Africans, who were who were willing to make concessional side deals as long as prices came down for people in South Africa. They cared less about whether or not the whole IP system were revised because they just wanted the drug prices lower in South Africa, and they were able to make common cause. For a while, I think papering over some of the problems, so there was enough coherence on that high-level ask that uh, that the internal divisions weren't a problem. More recently, they have become a problem, as you see. You know, Jamie Love has now graduated to be the more moderate voice, and there are other people like I think IPAC and others who are basically saying, "Hey, some of these uh, agreements." with the medicines patent pool on, um, so that this is a new institution that was created to be something of a public-private partnership where uh, branded firms basically say, hey, we'll we'll show you some of our intellectual property on how to make the drugs uh, and provide it with limited access, particularly to low-income countries, but not to middle-income countries. We're going to do that voluntarily to this agency that's based in Geneva that's sort of housed under the aegis, or it was under the aegis of, uh, of... uh, Unitaid, which is another new agency that was cre- anyway. Um, so, um, 
so now the, now Jamie Love is fighting with IPAC um, over whether or not these are good bargains or not. Um, now they're, the movement's less united um, than it once was. But I think back, back, back in the day, 10 years ago or so, they were united enough on that high-level goal. So that's my reading of the case, maybe subjective. But you know, I think that's where we can have a, have a discussion that's uh, profitable. This issue about the merit, drugs, uh, merit goods is interesting because it's, it was an, e- an effort to conceptually change the idea that AIDS drugs should be merit goods, that they should be, be provided on the basis of need. And there was a partial acceptance of that such that, you know, there, in practice it means like a handful of drugs now are perceived as ones that people should have access to uh, no matter where they were born. But these issues aren't frozen in time. The, the concept of merit good is relatively new, so there could be backsliding. And so we could, you know, with concerted agency and activism by... Um, branded drugs, we might, we might take a step back on that, or we might not take the next step forward that suggests, hey, as these uh, current drugs that are generic lose their efficacy and we need to move to second and third line treatment, that these, the idea of merit goods isn't just about the drugs that we currently have on offered, also uh, extends to those that are needed now that the sort of life cycle of the disease is matured in people's bodies and they need new classes of drugs. And it's a continued contestation that I think means that the, you don't win a victory and then say, hey, we've won forever. It's a merit good, so we can walk off the battlefield. Because there are some people who are committed and believe it um, within industry. They're willing to concede that. But that's a settlement that's you know 10 years old. And like other new rules, as we suggest in our theory, that um, it, it, it doesn't have yet the taken-for-granted quality that something like sovereignty does. So give it time. It may last. It may not. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Josh. Welcome to LFC. Um, was well, a super interesting story. Thanks for telling it. I, I would like to maybe push you on a political economy aspect of the story. Sure. You know, You've really kind of framed the story as a, a story of kind of exceptionalism. Is something extraordinary happened here? I know on one level, one level it did, but you know we have a picture from your talk of activists walking into the global market. You know, as if the global market is just you know free, competitive, freewheeling, and unstructured. But in fact. Global markets are highly structured and politically managed in many, many, many mm-hmm. domains. I mean, the idea of politically organized actors stepping into structure a market, you know, we see it here in the case of these activists and firms and other political actors, but, you know, the whole GATT trading regime was meticulously managed by the politicians and private interests and mm-hmm. activists and unions. We have global cartels for certain commodities like the global oil market, which is, you know, meticulously politically managed and constructed. Right. The WTO itself, of course, was born of a lot of high-level politicking and self-interested actors mobilizing armies of lobbyists and lawyers to change the global trading regime. So this kind of political management of a market in a certain area is really not that that part is not is not uh, unique. I mean, even in organizing the supply chains or the generic Mm -hmm. low cost production in 
India and getting that delivered to Africa. I think most global merchandise trade happens within firms and within multinationals. It's not really market transactions. It's people calling and saying, you know, I can organize this for you. I'll get the finance team together. Yeah, it's right. really not just the invisible hand. Yeah. And so I just wonder if there, if you could take another pass at it and really highlight you know, another pass of the exceptionality of what we're talking about, because in many ways what you talked about of political actors organizing markets right. is really the way an awful lot of business is, yeah. is done. I, I agree with you. I guess, um, I guess the question is um, maybe it's um, – Maybe there's a uh, maybe it's not permeated academic community, but it seems like there's a kind of mythical representation of how markets work. Maybe among economists who are less, I mean, certainly not political economists, but economists might have this uh, myth of the invisible hand and the way markets work. But when you scratch the surface a little bit, most markets have some political underpinnings. So I don't think we're uh, uniquely claiming that this is an exceptional space. We're trying to maybe reclaim from the economists that this market, to the extent that there is the conventional wisdom that that generics automatically entered here without any buttressing by social movements or support of political institutions, that wasn't true in this case, and it may not be true in many markets. Um, I think um, as I arrived here, a friend of mine said that he was supposed to have a meeting with the Danish foreign minister but the government fell five minutes before he entered the office because Goldman Sachs had offered to buy a Danish energy company that was nationally owned, and there was fallout over in the in the uh, coalition government over that, and so the government fell apart, and and his meeting was canceled. Um, uh, and so the heavy hand of you know I was here uh, in the mid 1990s when you know. There was a kind of partial privatization of British Rail. I, I haven't followed it closely, but you know, the sort of inter- intersection of politics and g- government is is true in lots of places. So, I don't think there's a unique story or an exceptional quality about that. It's just that there's a maybe it, uh, economists um, and, and and maybe it's a straw man that there is an argument out there that says markets form spontaneously and. Maybe we need to find a different alternative argument against which we're hoisting our petard. But I, I, I think that um, it, it was a convenient foil. Uh, but I agree with you in general, markets don't work like that. Yes. Firstly, thank you. Um, Also, I was wondering, going back to the slide you had about the breakdown for kind of the outlook, um, I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit about the NCDs and kind of why it's mixed and what areas you think are positive and negative. So actually, let me go forward. Um, So this is is from Chapter 7. So... One of the interesting things about non-communicable diseases is that it bundles a whole bunch of different issues like diabetes, cancer, tobacco. And it's, it's basically saying, like, let's make allies of all the business actors in this space who might be threatened by efforts to challenge their business model. And I think it also includes things like, uh, I don't know, sugary drink, like the Coca-Colas of this world. So you're basically targeting all of them in mass and, and making them potentially opponents of your campaign, which has different dimensions, different asks, right? So it's got, um, you know, there's not necessarily one thing, relaxation of IPR. It's also, to, you know, tobacco controls. And I think um, as a consequence of that, 
you, you've got a potentially compelling issue. All of these are problems that potentially kill lots of people. Um, but you've got a, 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 a challenge here that the, some parts of the, uh, of the market may be uh, contestable, that there may be a handful of companies that you could go after, but you've gone through after so many different problems that um, on the whole, it's, it's less contestable. Um, the, the activists are divided between themselves. Some people are saying, well, why don't we just take on tobacco? Other people are saying, uh, why don't we uh, you know, focus on this part of the problem? Some people are saying, hey, let's junk the IP rules entirely. And other people are saying, well, let's just relax it a little bit when it comes to cancer drugs and this or that. Um, so there's not really unity among campaigners. Uh, what they're asking for is really costly, if you, and, and you're affecting these private sector actors in a way where they're all like, okay, now we're all pissed off at the campaigners, as, as opposed to if, we, if there had just been a focused campaign on let's, let's figure out how, to, how do we do something on cancer, or how do we do something on diabetes. Um, and then there's not really a kind of institutional structure to support a new market outcome. So that was our reading of this case. And so my, my you know, there's like a, an umbrella group for noncommunicable diseases. And my recommendation would be to, to, you know, don't have an umbrella campaign that pisses off all of the private sector actors. I would just, you know, kind of divide them up, you know, in the same way that um, advanced industrialized countries sometimes, you know, when the G77 gets together, uh, they are sometimes able to re rebuff uh, the, uh, the entreaties or efforts by uh, rich countries to have them um, uh, relax their IP rules. But when you do, like, bilateral trade agreements, they're able to salami slice and get better bargains with uh, poor countries by you know, flip it on its head in this space and say, like, the cancer folks should focus on the com companies that are producing cancer drugs and see what the best deal they can get. And the diabetes people should focus on that problem, and the tobacco people should... They're, they're not gaining anything by allying together. Their, 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 their ability to succeed collectively is worse. Yes, I'll come back to you. Thank you. Oh, I, I think... Okay, Steen, you're next. That's uh, what she actually asked, but I just wanted to say that probably there is, a, like you said, we have something to celebrate partially about HIV AIDS, and my question was actually going to say, is that possible to be repeated in the non-communicable uh, disease uh, circle? Because we have those competing interests. The big uh, companies uh, seem to be the underlying, I don't want to call them opposers, yeah. if so, for the lack of a better word. Yeah, uh, you know, I think the underlying reality is is that um, millions of people lack access to these drugs uh, for some of these diseases that are dying. That creates a potentially compelling narrative around which to rally opinion in lots of different places in both the West as people who are supportive of, you know, you see someone being like President Bush, um, George W. Bush, in his post-presidency, he's got a campaign with his wife called... Uh, Pink Ribbon, Red Ribbon, which is to deal with uh, early detection of ovarian and breast cancer, right? Th there's a way in which Westerners are, you know, there's a massive campaign with, like, um, uh, the Race for the Cure and the, you know, Pink Ribbon that's I, it may be transnational now, but it, it certainly it, it, it commands wide attention in the West. There are lots of people in China, India, and other places um, uh, who are affected by cancer. It's a leading cause of death of women. This is a great campaign, potentially, if it's run right, you know. But, you know, sort of saying, and let's dump in the tobacco thing and, the, you know, 
run a campaign, but do a smart campaign. And I think it could work, but then you have to figure out, okay, so who are the companies involved in this space? You know, go after them on a targeted basis. And the, the challenge is the middle-income countries, because this is the growth sector for these firms, and so they're, they want tiered pricing. They want prices for poor countries that are really low, and then medium prices for middle-income countries. But the problem is, is there are lots of poor people in middle-income countries. And so can you have tiered pricing even within a country? And so you could target pricing, you know, so the, the elites within that country wouldn't necessarily have to pay. Because what some of the advocates want in this space is they want the middle-income countries to get the same benefit of the rules that the poorest countries get. But that just means that, you know, the branded companies are thinking, look, there's, they're like, you know, I don't know, 20 million people are middle class in China. Why do they have to pay the same thing that someone who makes $100 a year or, uh, uh, or $200 a year or whatever it is or you know, $900 a year in sub-Saharan Africa when their annual income is you know, in excess of ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000? I don't, I don't think that's uh, a sustainable business model for them. Uh, but they might be willing to concede if there's a way to disaggregate and say, okay, if you're a Chinese peasant, you get to pay one price. If you're a Chinese elite living in Beijing, you got to pay another. Um, I think that's part of the sustainable strategy that lowers the costs for firms as they think about um, acquiescing a bit in this space. Okay, so let me just get a scope to Steen, yeah, and then you, I'll come back to you, the side of the room. Yeah. And I'm happy to collect a couple if we want to do that, just to make sure everybody, well, there's plenty of time, right? Yeah, we're good. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, I have a question about the uh, sustainability of the the aid success. Yeah, um, you've touched upon you know more people on 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 treatment, more people needing second line treatment, but also um, also the more um, complex globalized structure. Um, for instance, with the with the European Union and the and India now, um, you know. Um, Negotiating a free trade agreement, um, India supplying most of the the uh, drugs for for most sub-Saharan African countries. Um, this, you know, this very complex you know structure is, I would guess, would be very difficult for activists um, to to kind of you know say that hey. Um, You know, people suffering from AIDS, HIV and AIDS in Africa are suffering because if this, you know, EU-India trade agreement goes through and there are TRIPS plus, then, you know, right. that might lead to very expensive um, drugs. That's very hard to kind of punchline into to the media. So, so my question is basically, um, do you think that this very, like, you know, complex globalized structure will make it difficult to, to sustain the, the campaign? I, you know, not not necessarily. I mean, uh, so Doctors Without Borders has a campaign that's basically along those lines that says no free trade agreement with India that has overturning of TRIPS rules. And Indian campaigners themselves are actively, you know, trying to pick at the Indian government's willingness to acquiesce uh, and make concessions on that side. And so I think um, in this space, uh, you know, the same thing would have been said for the complexity of the argument to initially deal with and relax TRIPS rules and IPR flexibilities 10 years ago. Uh, so nobody thought a campaign was even possible in this space. The problem now is that there are fewer campaigners who are really interested in it. You know, you have a waxing and waning of attention that's inevitable. Uh, and I think that there, you know, you have the Jamie Loves who've been at this for 20 years. Um, he's, 
he's not a spring chicken. He's not really old. But you know, you could imagine that at a certain point, like um, it, you, if you have a movement that's too reliant on a handful of charismatic figures, and God forbid, you know, somebody like him who's got a lot of knowledge and a lot of energy in the space, and you know, dies in a car wreck, you know, then what? You lose like one of the key architects. You have Ellen Tahoe, and you know, and uh, you, there are a few people that you can kind of name them on on your hand. There may be some new ones that emerge, like the IPAC folks. But um, more people who who care about these issues have to spend some intellectual capital on in understanding this space. Um, and so, you know, there's always the kind of gravitation towards like service delivery. But some of the key aspects of this are not about you know, like doing projects out in the field. It's like fighting the good fight. And on both the industry side and on the advocacy side, to make sure that you know that um, you know companies and countries that support them don't just sort of push sort of mercantilist you know policies that benefit their own producers that you know deny access. Um, hi, my name is Jana, and I used to work in prevention, so HIV/AIDS prevention. Yeah. And I worked in rural Tanzania, you know, as remote as you can get. Yeah. Um, and HIV/AIDS infection rate was estimated to be over 30% right. where, where I worked. And from my experience, I didn't actually see that there was a universal agreement for treatment. Um, so the community where I worked was a, a Catholic mission. Right. So, you, you know, as far right in that sense as you can get. And I had lots of passionate um, conversations with the priest there because he actually, he wasn't that much in favor of treatment because really the ones that were infected had gone against the rules of the church because right. if you had abstained before marriage and then you remained faithful during marriage, you wouldn't be HIV AIDS infected, right. which is also the reason why he opposed condoms in the first place because you only need condoms when you you know, go against the rules yeah. of the Catholic church. So... He, w he wasn't in favor of it. And I also encountered another opinion quite a few times that actually whilst you're treating HIV AIDS infected people, you're increasing the pool of infected people, which increases the likelihood of other people getting infected. As weird as that sounds, but from an epidemiology perspective, I mean, it sounds so sinister and cold, but basically the more infected people you have over the course of their lifetime, the more they can infect other people, basically. And there was a lot of sinister views that I encountered that maybe the best way is to let them die. Right. And I don't know. I couldn't deal with that, to be honest. But um, I don't know whether you've seen that or whether that's just sure. my skewed... Um, so, so my sense is that the opinions of people in affected countries on some level mattered less then you know this is this is truer as we think about the kind of creation of PEPFAR and um, and other bilateral instruments and even the global fund uh, that you know the the target actors um, initially in this space were Western countries and then also in the as we talked about in this book on the broader market sector but the opinions of people at the grassroots and sort of individual villages like in affected countries like Tanzania those had less weight. It was Western ad advocates and some, you know, prominent groups like TAC in South Africa and a few other places. 
but you know the opinions of your sort of you know Catholic mission in the field those didn't weigh in very much in terms of Western perception of the um, exigency of this problem and the fact that treatment was a desirable outcome. And the people within the West who shared those views had sort of a religious conversion on the issue. Like um, the way, you know, Jesse Helms, who figures prominently in my other story about debt relief, was also uh, figures prominently in this case, that he, in his 80s, um, he gave a speech to an evangelical church group that, uh, where he broke down and cried for his earlier comments in which he said, you know, AIDS is a sin, all of these people are, have engaged in disgusting behavior, and they should all basically die. You know, he later came back and said, you know, uh, there are reports from missions that there are children dying, you know, with mother-to-child transmission. There are all of these innocents, you know, in his mind, who are affected by HIV on, you know, millions of them, you know, alighting some of the issues that might be, you know, morally problematic about sex before marriage and the like. But, you know, when you have children, um, you know, uh, mothers who are HIV positive because, you know, their, their husbands have multiple sex partners and they're uh, infected, that there's a way in which the religious right comes to see this as a wider issue of, of millions of people who are innocent, who are dying from this problem so we can support treatment. And those were the voices that really mattered in terms of changing government opinion on addressing this problem, particularly in the United States. Now, the second question, I, I, think, um, I think it is a point of fact that, you know, when people are on treatment, their, their viral loads go down so that they're less likely to transmit the disease to others. And so that's just probably, if I understand the science correctly, then that the likelihood that they're, even if they have uh, other sex partners and practice unsafe sex, the likelihood that they're going to transmit it and pass it on to others goes, goes down. And also that the you know, that there are sort of phases of the life cycle of the virus in which there's high transmissibility, like soon after they become infected and maybe sometimes flaring up again near the end of their lives, but they may be less likely to have sexual activity in those waning stages because they're so sick. And so uh, I, th I think there, you know, I think that there are ways that one could come kind of combat those views, but you ultimately had, you know, this, you know, if you look at, just as a, as a side issue, if you look at Afrobarometer polls from the um, mid-2000s on this issue, HIV AIDS from, at the country level in countries like Tanzania was never the highest priority. You know, this was, a, if you had to say, here's a billion dollars for X, you know, they no, might not have spent it on HIV AIDS. In, in a sense, it was, it, in, in, in some affected populations within those countries, they mobilized like TAC did in South Africa. But to a certain extent, you know, the West came with cash and said, will you take money for X? But, it, you know, if they'd said, here's cash, what would you like to spend it on? They might not have spent it on HIV AIDS. And so Alex DeWall has a, has a great book on this um, from four or five years ago that was like why there's been no, like, political crisis related to HIV AIDS yet. Um, and it's because, you know, even at the level of mass public opinion, you know, most people weren't exercised about this problem. Got a question, right? Uh, thank you. Um, I was noticing a trend that so AIDS has a single identifiable um, problem and able to rally around a, a single ask, and then a lot of these other issues have multiple causes or multiple solutions. And 
and one of their weaknesses is trying to all campaign together asking for different things but the alternative seems like you're going to have hundreds of different campaigns like if you campaign for each one of these issues separately then you're just going to have a deafening yell of different campaigns and how do you solve that tension of trying to get people together around a single ask but also covering all the things that need to be done in the world. (laughs) There weren't that many people who were involved in this movement initially. Like um, some of the names uh, that I put up from those early screens, you know, that you add a few more people in the network and then they had great influence. They could punch above their weight uh, because they were very strategic, but you didn't necessarily need, like, I mean, maybe every now and then you'd need um, the ability to mass mobilize at the grassroots level. Like you had some of the uh, uh, kind of international aid society meetings that one was held in South Africa and TAC was able to get sort of bodies on the streets. But you kind of had uh, and then you had a few things like on the campaign trail uh, when Al Gore was running for uh, president in the U.S. where he had been supportive of actions of the lawsuit against South Africa where you know his very first event um, I think it was in New Hampshire where he announced he was running for president. You had Health Gap and ACT UP people you know, who infiltrated the event and then unfurled banners that said, you know, Gore, you're killing kids in Africa. You know, it only took five of them. That was the story. Instead of, I announced today that I'm running for president, you have, like, AIDS campaigners disrupting his meeting. It didn't take a lot of them. So, you know, I'm less worried about, you know, the numbers than I am of the strategic, you know, ability for those advocates to kind of punch above their weight by you know, pulling in the media and being very smart about it and kind of, you know, um, putting the, 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 the target actors on their heels, whether it's the government or, um, or the market actors. Uh, sometimes you need, you know, more bodies. If, I would encourage people to re- watch the documentary on AIDS activists uh, act up on how to survive a plague if you haven't seen it. Um, they had more bodies, but, it, you know, at, at the end of the day, the number of ACT UP activists was probably, you know, less than 10,000. But, you know, if you have 500 motivated activists and they descend upon, you know, the headquarters of a company uh, and then call the media, and they're preparing to, prepared to chain themselves to something, you know, scale a building or run into the office. Um, I, I had... Uh, I'll, I'll digress for a second, or if I or digress from my digression. Um, when I was a campaigner, I worked with a group here in the UK called Third World First, which then became People and Planet. Um, and I had a phase of very long hair, and um, we hitchhiked to London uh, as part of the Lloyds and Midland bank boycott, um, and we uh, bought shares in Lloyds and Midland, and then we. Uh, went into the bank meeting, and then at one point we rushed the stage and were prepared to chain ourselves to the CEO of the company. Um, and the media were there. Because um, I, I got to the front of the stage, I realized, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm like 22 years old. I have no idea. Um, but you know, the media was present. And if I had a clear strategic sense of the ask, we, we were basically saying, write off third world debt. And that was kind of the ask. And that, that was... You know, there was a lot more that I didn't know about at the time, but we said right off third world debt. That was that was enough to keep that issue in the papers when I was on the student union at the University of East Anglia. Um, they felt like they had to react to us, and there were many of us. It just we picked a really strategic moment to intercede in their annual general meeting. So it doesn't take a lot of people to potentially put these in a place where companies feel 
somehow vulnerable to, uh, to pressure. Okay, we have a couple more. Yeah, you can go first, and then we'll go back to that side of the room. We'll just keep on going back for like a tennis match. All right. Uh, good evening, everyone. Do you think AIDS is a hidden agenda to depopulate the poorest country on earth? Um, by whom? is because a poor country, there is no way they can afford to buy the drugs. But it, who's, the, who's the plan by? I'm not entirely sure. Whoever is probably like a secret agent or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there's a great book on the origins of AIDS by, um, by uh, Jacques Pepin, who talks about the uh, way in which... Um, and there's a second book uh, by uh, Craig Timberg, and uh, another guy whose name is eluding me. What's that? Dave, Daniel Halperin. Uh, Tim Bergen Halperin. Um, and um, th- basically, the story of AIDS emergence is one of uh, hunters in maybe the DRC in the 1920s who there's a similar virus in uh, chimpanzees and other monkeys. They must have gotten infected blood on them as they killed a monkey um, and they may may have had open sores, they may have cut themselves with an axe. There was some species jump that happens in the 1920s and then uh, it sort of doesn't really have the potential to spread widely but as Kinshasa and other cities uh, start to become major epicenters of of growth, particularly in the colonial era in which um, you know, traditional societies are disrupted, some of which by the colonialists themselves, that uh, you have the emergence of large-scale prostitution within Kinshasa, in part to service people who were moved out of rural areas to help service and support uh, efforts to extract um, products from uh, Africa. Uh, then it created the ripe epidemiological conditions for uh, AIDS to spread widely. So they've genetically fingerprinted how far back this goes and where it starts and the variety of AIDS that have, uh, of, of, of HIV strains that are out there and, and where they initially come from. So I think the definitive answer to your question is no, and I would encourage you to read either or both of those books. I really like the Jacques Pepin book because um, it really um, it, it unpacks the history of it in a way that, you know, you know there, there's enough at fault for the colonial countries that disrupted the societies there that um, one could... You know, if you wanted to lay blame on some level, which Timberg and uh, Halperin do, you could. Uh, but you don't need some sort of, you know, government conspiracy, you know, NSA style to let your imagination run wild. Hi, and thank you for this talk. I, uh, as far as I understood it, it is generic get drugs on the stage one level, but on the stage two and three, there are still branded companies that had patency. And I was wondering, because you said something interesting about how they are now challenging these branded companies to give, for instance, one price to a poor peasant in China yeah. and another price to like a middle-class citizen. But that would have to uh, mean that in China they have to have an individual um, individual Like everyone who asks for drugs will have to have an individual price set for them, which will take a lot of resources. 
So is there any willingness from, uh, from Chinese government or Indian governments to do these structural changes? Or else it would be kind of a hollow request from the branded companies. Yeah, I, I think there's a, the ability to do means testing in, you know, like for services in, like in the U.S. and other places. That that's a sort of uh, familiar phenomenon. I have confidence that the um, that the Chinese government could figure that out. You know, they have a pretty all extensive government there, and um, you know. If they wanted to figure out how to differentiate between, you know, maybe they just do it on the basis of where you're from regionally. Like, um, if you're from the hinterland, the interior. If you're from Shanghai, then you got to pay a higher price. If you're from, you know, Podunk in the middle of, you know, the country, you got to pay a lower price. Uh, that, there could be simplified ways of doing it. There could be more exact ones based on means testing to the extent that they're they have systems of recording, you know, what people are paid. I, you know. Um, I think that there are ways to do it, and I—I I, I mean, I—I I, I take your point that it's um, that have, having differentiated prices in middle-income countries may be problematic administratively. But the the alternative is uh, is potentially having the branded companies fight tooth and nail to deny lower prices for everyone. So if the if the choice is whether or not 400 million poor Chinese get access or nobody gets access, I'd go for the 400 million. Are there any other last questions? Oh, yeah, you, there you go. The solution which you are suggesting that uh, few of the middle class person, maybe call it China or anywhere else, will pay the higher price and the poor will pay the lower price. Yeah. Wouldn't this give rise to arbitrage where the people will buy at lower price and will sell to higher price and make money for the, themselves than the money goes to company? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. Um, so the big fear of extending this, uh, uh, extending lower prices internationally, was the prospects for international arbitrage, right? And that's what the drug companies initially feared, but it didn't really materialize very much. So I guess in the context of a domestic setting, that may be much harder to police, right? Um, and and you know I can imagine in uh, the Indian or Chinese setting that that may be a harder sell. Um, but uh, you know the the question is you know if if the poor person um, who is on HIV drugs um, does that and doesn't take the drugs themselves they will die, right? So the survival instinct to do that you know may be strong enough for the person maybe they get you know if there's a limited quantity that they can access and they can't buy more than they or they can't access more than they need then they have to say well. Um, I'm going to trade my own survival uh, for the prospect of making a little bit of cash. Um, and some people may do that. And then the question is, you know, there could be monitoring measures to see, well, your CD4 count actually hasn't um, responded favorably to the medication. Why is that? Oh, um, you know, we're going to go do a home visit or something. Maybe pretty quickly you discover they're not taking it because they're selling it. And so you say, sorry, until you take it, no drugs for you, right? Uh, you know, this is, this is in a sense, um, one potential s- solution to this, but it's kind of at the outer edge of where things potentially are at the moment. And um, you, uh, you've identified a potentially fatal problem with the idea. But, um, you know, 
If not that, then what? Great. Josh, thank you very much. Thank you all very much. Yeah.